I had to go to the bathroom really bad. There was no bathroom around. I pooped my running shorts. Why am I telling this to you now? Uh, welcome everyone <laughs> to the Are You Ready podcast. That's how we do it here. Meet Dan Walters, my running coach since 2017. And like most hardcore runners, he talks pretty freely about the human digestive process. Here's the thing. Runners are pretty candid when it comes to digestive oh, issues. Don't, don't, care, don't care anymore. You can't yeah. afford to care. Because <laughs> next week something else happens, whatever. So how old were you when this happened? Sophomore in college. It was, okay. so it was 2005. When you're a sophomore in college, you think that you don't have to plan. But when you're in your late to <laughs> mid-40s... You know, the four nearest bathrooms. Yes, exactly. You know, exits on the highway. Right? I literally have a physical reaction when I see a porto potty it's, oh my God, right. it's like Why is visceral. my adrenaline pumping yes, now? Yes, <laughs> like I'm so happy. I don't need to use the bathroom, but I yes. see one for future reference. if I reference. did, wow. Exactly. In this week's episode, we, of course, talk about running. But more than that, I want to share the story of how this one-time engineer turned his passion and side hustle into an incredibly successful career as the head coach of DW Running, the Chicago-based running team that Dan today leads with his wife, Allie. DW Running currently boasts 288 race wins, 496 Boston Marathon qualifying marks, five Olympic marathon trials appearances, countless personal bests and age group wins, and even one beer mile champion. The diverse team is composed of everyone from former college track stars to university professors, from an age group world champion to a lawyer and content creator. Personally, after working with Dan for only one year, I PR'd in every single race I ran in 2018, including three marathon personal bests. But even putting aside all the PRs and race medals, I've long counted my decision to join DW Running and to work with Dan as one of the best decisions I've ever made because he continues to teach me that it's when you set aside your ego that confidence finally has a chance to grow. Dan is a mentor and a friend, and his inspirational story is a blueprint for building the career and even life of your dreams. Well, thanks so much for joining oh, me. It's a pleasure. And thanks for letting us invade your beautiful home here. I have to say, you and Allie have done a remarkable job of just making it picturesque. Thanks for pretending I had a say in that before. <laughs> You did. I was saying it. <laughs> yeah, you she did. was the mastermind and the designer. And the she seems like executor. she's the mastermind of a lot. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I actually wanted to go back to University of Illinois, mm -hmm. our mutual stomping mm -hmm. grounds, because that is where I went to college. That's where you went to college, right? And yeah. what did you study? in Mechanical engineering. Okay. And what made you go into mechanical engineering? I think I always was pretty good just at the math and science courses. So it was the obvious, like, you know, what I was good at was enjoyable just for that direct sake of that. I just liked figuring out how things worked. So taking things apart, putting them together, asking a lot of why questions just as a kid. And I, it just seemed like um, either it was machinery or, or different just processes figuring out what it was all about in mechanical engineering. Um, seemed like a good fit for that, that I would be oh, pretty good at the courses and also enjoy the work too. 
was this something that you knew you wanted to get into starting at an early age or was it more just, hey, I need to pick a major in college. This seems like a good fit. I think kind of both. It, I always had that kind of an analytical mind and I, I knew it would be in that vein if it was maybe a different type of engineering or going into more of a different type of science or, or uh, industrial field. But I, I knew that'd be a good, a mechanical engineering degree is kind of versatile. It can really go other places or lead to a more advanced degrees too. So I knew it was a good launching off point, and I probably wouldn't go down a direction I didn't want to be on there. Mm. You were running throughout high school, though, right? Yeah. Okay. And did you continue running at a pretty you know, regular or competitive level in college as well? At first, I, was on, I walked on the track and field and cross-country teams there. I was on the team for like a year and a half. Got a pretty bad injury. Um, I mean, the PT staff can only do so much when you're a walk-on. They're not going to spend a lot of money keeping you on. Mm. So after kind of a semester, half a year of uh, wallowing in this Achilles injury. They said, no space for you anymore. You can always try out again, but not right now. So um, left after my sophomore year. What got you into running in the first place? And how old were you when you started running? The obvious answer, I guess, is my father. Uh, the nice thing, of, so the nice thing about, you know, and I've, I've really reflected on it recently because I have a son now and um, he's obviously young, but thinking about how I'll eventually want to teach him and just bring him along in this world. My father always exposed me to athletics and his running, and they brought me to races, but there was never pressure to do it or you should try this. So I kind of ran a little bit in junior high on the track or on the cross country team there. I never did track. I liked it, but I liked kind of the social aspect, and I wasn't really into the training yet. Um, I was more into basketball at the time, but when I saw that road end pretty abruptly um, in junior high, um, running was there. I already had kind of a friend group in it. I kind of liked it. I never got pushed into it, but honestly, I remember the exact moment. Cross-country season, my sophomore year, I went through and did it. Again, just kind of like going through the motions, went to practice, ran the races, but wasn't that invested in actually um, dedicating myself, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally to, uh, to something. Uh, there was the conference meet, and I remember the numbers because the numbers stick with me. There was 125 kids in this race. I was 63rd, which is the mathematical middle of 125. So I was the average person in this race, <laughs> quite literally the middle number. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt very average that day. <laughs> Like I was. And my dad sat me down and went, great job. That was awesome. But to keep going, you probably should either commit in this or don't waste your time. I don't need you to, but if you want to do this, it'll take a lot more of your effort and you'll probably be frustrated and average. Or you should just put your attention and energy somewhere else. And I kind of took that to heart going, I like this, I think enough to give it a shot. And I remember from that moment forward, I said, I might as well give myself a shot and try harder, commit more be a little more vulnerable and kind of uh, risk some failure. And I then got pretty into it, found my friend group, found my passion for putting work in and seeing improvement. Mm. So for people who don't know about your dad, obviously I know a lot about your dad having you know, been working with you for years now, but I think there there is – this is not a casual thing for your father. It's, it's the not, opposite of casual. Yeah, I mean, your dad is is extraordinary in running. And so pressure, no pressure, mm-hmm. the amount of um, pushing, non-pushing he might have been doing with regard to running can be pretty influential, I guess, in terms of how you came about joining the team and pursuing this as a commitment. Can you talk a little bit about, just very briefly, what your father's background is in running, his achievements, and then you know, we can talk a little bit more about his approach towards sure. your running. He was part of a family that moved around a lot in his youth in the Chicagoland suburbs. 
So never really got a, a, a really good home base of friends and community. And I think was looking for community in sports and tried everything. And it didn't go that well. He was small and skinny and underdeveloped through most of his adolescence, uh, as I was. And found running and was pretty good at it, but also found something where, as we know in this room, if you put some effort in, you'll see some improvement almost at any level. Just You can kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just work and get better, even if you're not very talented. So he found that, and he found a couple coaches that believed in him starting in high school. To kind of fast forward through, he worked his ass off. He was a state champion in high school in cross country and in the two-mile, and he went to college and was an All-American at the University of Illinois in cross country. And then he kept going marathoning in the 1980s, and he made the Olympic trials in 1988. He ran a 219 marathon. Wow. And then he said, ah, marathons are great, but I think I want to do something else. So in the 90s, he got into duathlons. He won his age group at the World Championships twice. And then got back into marathoning in the 2000s and has since won, I can't remember, probably 15 titles at the different World Marathon majors for the age group. And even just last October, won his age group at Last September, won his age group at the London World Marathon uh, age group championship. Wow. So um, he has bopped around, which I think is really healthy to find a passion, put yourself into it, and then keep pivoting to keep things fresh. Um, but he's kind of held himself to a, a level of excellence for uh, a long time now. So for people who don't know, a 219 marathon, that's ridiculous. <laughs> five, five minutes and 20 seconds a mile for... That's insane. Miles, yeah. I can't even run... For 30 seconds at that speed. You surprise yourself. <laughs> Without injuring myself. Maybe 40 seconds. <laughs> so what was it like growing up with running in the background all the time? I'm assuming that, you know, with your father, like you said, bopping around with various different, you know, running-centric sports, that must have been sort of an ongoing refrain in mm-hmm. your household. Totally. And I, I think, you know, with anything, you, you you adapt to the environment you're placed in. So it was normal to, on a weekend, go to a 10K an hour away or eventually a duathlon. Um, but it, it was just seeing my father holding himself to a high standard, seeing him being healthy, seeing him taking care of his body, seeing my mother support it so thoroughly, um, learning how to cheer and support someone as a young kid and eventually as a you know teenager. It was just really cool. I see a lot of a lot of adults don't have a passion that I see now. They just kind of go through their life. And to see that from a young age made sure I knew that I was going to define myself. I don't, you know, it's still developing, but I'll always have something outside of the normal bounds of life that you can be really kind of selfish about and put some energy in yourself. And I saw that from a young age. That seemed very normal to commit yourself to something, to hold yourself to a, a, a standard and something that you're passionate about. I think many of us look up to our fathers, especially when we are young. I certainly did. Although my father wasn't qualifying for the Olympic trials anytime soon, I knew him to be one of the smartest, most intelligent persons I knew. He taught me to read and write in Korean when I was only six years old, tutored me in math so well I graduated from college math as a senior in high school. But some things aren't as straightforward as algebra, and I was curious to hear how Dan's father imparted some of life's more nuanced lessons. One thing that you said earlier that I think is so true about running and certainly makes sense in light of your current career, you know, as a running coach is learning very early on that if you commit and put some effort into something, you're almost always going to see some improvement. You're going to make gains. You are going to achieve incremental success. And I can't imagine what sort of influence that would have on a young person when mm. that's always in the background, watching mm. your father make incremental gains you know, across a lifetime at a sport. But I guess the other thing that you said earlier was 
that it was okay to be vulnerable. Mm. It was okay to fail mm -hmm. uh, in the pursuit of those incremental gains. Can you remember a time when you saw your father disappointed at you know a race or at a specific event where he was hoping that he would have run faster, done a mm. little bit better? Actually, I think one of his superpowers is that no. <laughs> Uh, I, I, th I think, again, you're going to make me coach soon. I'm going to start coaching. <laughs> I think most people have such an adverse reaction to failure or to doing poorly that's almost better to not have big goals numerically or that are kind of tangible to more. That's why we, you know, big mantra these days is trust the process, love the process, be more invested in how you do something than where it led you, you know, journey versus destination. I've always found with him I think he's had this extraordinary ability to have numerical, hard, black and white goals and to shoot for them. And if he hits them, they're, he's really happy about it. And if he doesn't, I'm sure there's some internal turmoil and some disappointment, but he can swallow it quickly, learn lessons and move on. Mm. So it's almost like he can ride the highs of a great day and not really suffer the consequences of a bad one because he knows how to slip in and out of different mental states. Mm. So that's, again, I coach a lot of people. And that's a very rare thing. Usually if you have high numerical goals, you'll have that downside of the, the, the valleys of failure and despair. But I, I don't remember a lot of, I remember him, he's always enthusiastic. He always, if he gave his best, he knows it's all that really matters. He controlled what he could. Mm -hmm. I've learned that a lot to hold on to the good stuff. And then as soon as something poorly happens, Rolodex some lessons and then flush that crap down the toilet. <laughs> always going back to the toilet. Always. <laughs> I'm all about. It's very important. Yeah. <laughs> Regulation is very important. <laughs> so you're in college then. You walk onto the team, but unfortunately due to a persistent injury, you can't sustain right. yourself on the team. What was that like, dealing with that sort of disappointment, one that's sort of out of your control? In retrospect, probably had more control than I thought, but at the moment we didn't know what to do, and you know, it, hindsight's always 2020. It was really hard compared to my the people my age and in, in, at school, I was still a pretty young training age. I hadn't really taken running seriously until kind of that sophomore, junior range. So I knew my training age was low and I thought I had a pretty high potential. Like I had, I was just starting my journey, I thought, as a sophomore in college. And it was really frustrating to see the plane about to take off and have to kind of circle back and not be able to even leave the runway. The nice thing is my coaching career did kind of start shortly thereafter. So the outlet, the fire hose of, of knowledge and energy could kind of just shift. But it was, it was kind of an empty feeling where I didn't know who I was because I based so much of myself on running. I think most folks feel that, you know, you base your ego or your self-worth on something. It was a little empty for a couple of years. I had school, I met my girlfriend, uh, now wife, and, but I had a hole that was, you know, kind of there. What did that hole teach you about falling into the trap of defining yourself by things like running or other things that sort of help you with your ego? I probably didn't learn it then, but especially now, and you've probably heard me say it maybe to you directly, <laughs> we, you know, that, that we can't think of ourselves as a thing. I try not to think of myself as a coach or as a father. I'm a man who coaches or a man who's a father. And so that if something is going poorly or it's frustrating, it's nice to, well, I'm having a really rough day as a coach. I'll go be, I'll go be uh, a dad today, but I can always fall out of things and into other things. You know, we all have five or ten things that kind of define us. It's I, I try not to make one or two of them because if you do and that one goes south, mm. something's out of your control. Even in your control, it can be a pretty depressing day, week, month, or or longer. So hopefully, a lesson that we are, we are, we are a person that's made up of a lot of little things, and we can lean in and out of them as we need to, and practice them almost daily. I'm not a this. 
I'm a person who does this. I think that's so important because we talk a lot on this podcast about passions and finding your passion, um, incorporating your passion into your life. But I think there's sometimes a misconception that by definition, a passion needs to be all-consuming mm. and defining. But I think what you describe, and it seems to me what you described about your father, is that you can be passionate. First of all, you can be passionate about more than one thing, right? You can be passionate mm -hmm. about your family, your career, and running. I know your father is a very um, accomplished pilot. Um, he can be passionate about traveling. And those things don't need to necessarily consume or define you. And in fact, it may not actually be a good thing to be so defined. 100%. There's a really good book called The Passion Paradox by Steve Magnus, and he talks about that, where, you know, we, especially when you start something that's passionate, you, you find that hard work works. So hard, more hard work works more, and it does work for a long time. We usually end up tightening the noose around our own neck and, and eventually suffocating ourselves. So... Um, finding, you know, uh, being very passionate, being all in, but having outlets, having off times, having other things you're good at or enjoy, uh, knowing that there needs to be, you know, breaks on a daily, weekly, monthly, uh, other cycle level um, has been really important for me. I, you know, built this team or my own coaching um, style with a lot of hard work, but I've become better, I think, even the last few years, learning how to turn off and reset and be, be Dan that's not a coach for a while sometimes when I come back and I'm a little more refreshed. As you can probably tell, Dan was blessed with a natural flair for coaching, as well as a father who modeled the positive attitude necessary to overcome life's hurdles, literally. But as you'll hear, like so many people, Dan discovered his calling almost by accident. Well, speaking of outlet, it sounds to me that at least at first, coaching was an outlet for perhaps the disappointment you felt at not being 100%. a runner. So take us through that. I mean, you're a sophomore, is it, in college? Mm -hmm. You don't uh, get a spot on the team anymore because of your injury. How did that turn into coaching? So it was like total coincidence, but I was being typical runner nerd guy and <laughs> just started reading like running physiology books, just like why training works, what certain pros or Olympians have done at the same time. Like during my sophomore year, just like on the weekends or outside of engineering school, outside of the team, just was read this them. to help you with your yeah. own injury and your no, own training? No, just because I mean, at the time I was, I was healthy. It was like in those last few months of health, mm -hmm. I just happened to pick up these books that were kind of elemental to run training and that a lot of um, people into running were reading or that had read historically. So I, so I started gaining knowledge on, oh, these types of workouts or this philosophy works because of X, Y, and Z. And then I got hurt. I kept reading. It was kind of fun outlet. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting a year later, a little more educated, a lot less running, going, I, this is all pretty cool. And at the exact same time, again, I met my, uh, I met Allie, my now wife, who had just, just recently, all at the same time, also left the women's team. She wanted to keep running, though. And I had this knowledge and said, oh, you want to do a half marathon? I could write you a plan. I think I know something now. Let me just help. And I don't recommend coaching someone you're dating. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> But it worked. It never didn't work for us. I just think it's a really risky scenario to put yourself in if you like someone. Um, so I did, and I found that the engineering thing of if I do this, if I put X into a system, Y comes back to me, evaluate the data and try again, just that intuitive like experiment and analysis thing made total sense to me. So I didn't have a lot of physiology knowledge, but I did have a lot of like try something, watch the results roll in, try something new. And she was a willing participant. Guinea pig. Exactly. <laughs> so that's how it started during my like junior, senior year of college when she was like a freshman and sophomore. And then eventually as I graduated and she just 
finished up school down in Champaign. Well, um, it sounds very similar to how you described why you elected engineering, mechanical engineering specifically. Totally. You're taking things apart. You're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, input this, what's the output. So it sounds to me that a running plan you know, you're putting together a series of runs, but you're also trying to figure out, well, what works for this particular runner, in this case, your girlfriend? I, I, re- I really look at training uh, as just a series of experiments. That's all, for me, that's all it really is. And that's, that's why, um, I, you know, it's why if you're on my running team, you're our running team, you have a weekly call with me because sometimes I'll give, you know, if I give you a workout, Joanne, I want to know, you know, well, how did it feel, Joanne? I need to know, give me as much as you can so I can, um, you know, give you something even better for the next week, the next month, the next training cycle we do. That's just why I like training is because it seems like this cyclical thing where the running results matter, but your life matters and the weather matters and how you felt mattered, not just the numbers. I like that. Like, it's all synergistic. I like how that all mixes together. So how did Allie's half marathon go? Amazing. <laughs> she did great. She kicked a lot of ass. Best marathon yeah, ever. <laughs> um, no, and she, and she had a lot of fun. And I know that she left the team in Champaign because it wasn't, you know, for a variety of reasons, but, you know, the connection with her coach and, and some enjoyment stuff, and we just let her have fun and get fit, and it was something that, you know, kind of formed a lot of philosophical things for me now was how she did in those early races, just letting her letting her be the runner she wanted to be, doing the, you know, kind of holistic back-and-forth stuff that we do. Yeah, she was great from the beginning. At the time, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that at some point you would be opening your own business no. as a running coach? No. This was purely just for fun. It was, yeah. I mean, obviously, I wasn't uh, charging, charging her money. <laughs> there was no structure to it. I think I just sent her like an email once a week, or uh, maybe we just texted, or we had dates and talked. I don't. <laughs> it was very casual how we did it, but it worked, and it it was really fun to see. Like again, do an experiment, and then eventually get a successful final outcome was like a very fulfilling thing of try this for a series of months and get a really fulfilling result. Yeah. What was the half marathon she was running? I think she ran, the, it used to be called the Chicago Distance Classic, which is now the Chicago Half Marathon, the one down at Hyde Park. And it was in 20, uh, 2010 or so, maybe 2009, somewhere in there. And in the meantime, you're still studying as an engineering student. Yeah, I would have been a senior in college, maybe my, my last semester as a fifth year, and maybe she was yeah, a sophomore or junior in that time. And then I've actually graduated and moved to the city, and she finished up in Champaign. You know, I'm, I'm working as an engineer. She's working, she's studying to be an engineer. And I'm just kind of, again, still coaching her super casually, just writing plans, talking on the phone, dating. <laughs> Ridiculous <laughs> that this worked. Doing the young person thing. Yes. What was uh, your engineering job? So I worked at Sargent and Lundy. They do consulting work for nuclear or, or energy plants, you know, some, some fossil, some wind. I was in nuclear. So I worked on the uh, on Exelon power plants in the Midwest. What was that like? Really cool. I mean, it's it's cool to say that you work in nuclear power plants, and walking into a nuclear power plant is an unbelievable ex- experience. Just knowing that you're near a nuclear reaction and that you get to help, you know, lots of homes be powered. And working specifically in nuclear power is an outrageous amount of you know red tape and work to do little minute things because of the stakes of the whole thing. So I love being an engineer. I like the analytical side, but again, lots of paperwork and lots of meetings and lots of stuff that just. It's a lot of work to see little changes get done again because of the scope of everything. It ended up being um, just a lot of grind for me. Well, I can imagine you getting so elated at the results that you're getting with your girlfriend and training her for her half marathon and perhaps even future races. And then during your day job, 
you know, it's a lot of paper pushing, right. it sounds like, and not seeing these sort of incremental gains from the immense amount of work that you're pushing putting in. a thousand lemons and like a drop comes <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. It must I be frustrating. So. I think that's a lot of it. I never really articulated it that way. In the end, for me, it was knowing I, I was doing good for the world, I think. I was helping there be electrical power. <laughs> that was really great. But I knew that I was a good engineer, but really anyone with an engineering degree could do my job. I was up straight up with myself. I knew that. I was really easily replaceable. I was just an engineer. But then I, I kind of saw myself coaching going, I know this it doesn't seem as important to the world, but I am helping. And at that point, I was probably helping 5, 8, 10, 12 people. I'm helping them be really happy and give them something to do outside of being a mom or dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, their job and giving them kind of another identity and something to be happy with. So again, didn't seem as important on the world scale, but I was creating happiness and I didn't think as many people could do that. Well, and you could also see, like you could tangible, tangible. yeah, the results. I mean, you could see the joy on Allie's right. face. Week, when you weekly, run a, yeah, as exactly. we had practices or had phone calls, that the empowering, the confidence was something that was so, I didn't know that's where it would lead me. And oh, it, was, it was really cool. It's amazing. Yeah. So you you dropped in there by that time you were coaching 12 to 14 people. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, right. How did you go from coaching your girlfriend to uh, more than a dozen folks? We were just talking about your book before the uh, we started. It was kind of just word of mouth. You know, she would tell a friend at school or a mutual friend of ours. I coached a couple colleagues at, at Sergeant Lundy. I coached, uh, you know, friends of friends, cousin, my cousin for a while, uh, my, my wife's brother, so it's just those really close connections at first. Hey, you're training for a 5K. Um, I'll help you with that. You know, help my father-in-law train for a half marathon. Just little stuff. All for free. All as hard as I could because I knew I needed practice. Just because I, I got along with Allie so well. Um, and so it was, it was always easy to coach her. But I wanted to coach men and women, fast folks and slow folks, veteran runners and beginning runners. I just wanted to get really good at everything or at least try everything because I, I didn't know how to do anything. So I said, if you're willing to let me make mistakes on you, let's just go. And we did that for uh, several years, maybe 2010 to 2012, 13, just anyone I, I would want. You know, I coached my work run club, you know, several dozen people came out. We just wrote workouts and ran. And it was just really fun to throw eggs at the wall and see what happened. Well, I think it's so interesting that you said you wanted to experiment on all different shapes and sizes, genders, uh, goals, mm -hmm. uh, athletic levels, it sounds mm -hmm. like. And I guess my question is why? I mean, it's not like you're sitting there saying, well, I'm going to open up a coaching business in the near term, so I need to do this. Like, right. what was it that was driving well, you to want to try all of these different things? At some point very early, I, I did sit down with a mentor of mine. Her name is Jennifer Harrison. She, uh, my father coached her back in the 90s. Um, uh, for some running stuff when she was doing triathlons. And she now has a super successful coaching business, has for, I'm going to butcher it, between 20 and 30 years, um, and mostly in the triathlon space. And I saw her when I had like five or six people and said, I think I might have a thing here. What should I do? Do you have any advice? And one thing was coach anyone who wants help, anyone who has a running goal, clubs and work things and colleagues and brother, sister, and coach everyone. And you don't even know what you like yet or if you're any good. Try you know, again, all speeds and ability levels and difficult people, easy people, happy people, people who are hard on themselves, everyone. And then you'll start to know. And if you're good at it, you'll have success. You'll have people coming to you. Then you can be picky about, oh, I want to coach marathoners or I want to coach older folks or faster folks or beginners. You don't know yet. So why don't you see? See if you can hack it at this. And so she pushed me to find out if I was good, if I liked it and where my place was 
in the coaching world, if at all. Well, presumably you you did enjoy it, yes? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, hopefully. The experiment was fun just to see if I could morph it into d- different things, you know. So you're a nuclear engineer by day. You're coaching more than a dozen athletes it, by... It got up to 25 when I quit my job in 2015. And you were doing it for free? No, we, we started to charge a couple years before then, so, you know, pay for personal coaching. And I was still doing weekend long runs and the weekly phone calls just at my lunch break. Like, I was really abusing uh, working at Sergeant Lundy. Sorry if anyone works there still. Well, that's it's what like I really wanted to know. hours from those clients. I, so I would like to know that because <laughs> I think a lot of people worry that a side hustle can become overwhelming. Yeah. And it's hard to figure out where do you draw the line between work and side hustle or hobby even. Because at, the, at a certain point, sure, you started charging. But for a long time, it sounds like you were, you were doing several, this for free. Several years. It was a big belief for me that, first of all, I couldn't, I couldn't give enough value early. I was making too many mistakes to, to charge. And I wanted to earn just some good karma. I wanted to coach. If I did have success with you and I was coaching you for free, you're probably more apt to post on social media to tell your friends than if I'm, if I'm charging you as much as I'm worth at the exact moment. I wanted the wildfire to spread by just having a lot of – I want to start a lot of matches and not be having any, pr- any price to entry early. So my thing was I want to coach everyone under the sun for free. I coached the Marquette Run Club. I coached a high school group in the summer one year or in the winter. I coached my work club for, for I did, free. I, I just, I knew I wasn't worth it yet. And I, had, I knew the lessons would be, I learned how to talk in front of groups just with those groups. I learned invaluable stuff and I never probably would have gotten any of these gigs if I had said, oh, it's some monthly or flat fee to do this in 2010 when I had no, I was, I was just coaching with two people. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to learn on the job. And if you trust me, I'll coach you for free for a while. And I think people undervalue early on when you're trying something, giving things away. And then when you're worth it, you charge. But I do think you have to uh, earn it first. And you you have to hustle a lot early. Where did you find the time, though, to do this? I mean, you're a nuclear engineer for crying out loud. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was only, you know, it wasn't a super high... um, I was only working 45 or 50 hours a week, maybe. It was, it was a lot. It was pretty standard. Yeah. I would answer emails and texts right away in the morning, then go to work and answering emails on the way to work. And I took like a 60 or maybe a 75-minute lunch, way too long, <laughs> and emailed and texted and had phone calls all lunch back to work. And then on the commute home, also doing it. And then I just did it at night. What was that like, switching between coaching hat and nuclear engineering hat Kind of throughout the day, because I think... Not ideal for, I, for flow states. It, it isn't. I, yeah. I remember when I was trying to do the Korean vegan and lawyer, uh, and this is when the Korean vegan had become a little bit More overwhelming. Yeah. At, you know, I the book, I was working on the book a lot. I was dealing with videos and all what that you stuff. you did was way crazier, by the way. I don't know about that, but I just remember it wasn't really the fact that either of them took up too much time. Time was one thing, but I always felt like I could manage the time. What I had so much trouble doing was switching between the two. It's kind of like, you know, when you turn the engine off and on in your car, there's an immense amount of power that goes into just turning it on. And that's how I felt like every single time I had to switch from, you know, doing a recipe to doing discovery requests. There's a term for that, some sort of inertia when you have that, like there's a transition Oh my goodness, switching things. That's why, you know, a whole different podcast is, you know, when you have, you know, social media or e- email open, you're trying to do things yeah. at once and everything like crap instead. Is did, a, did, segmenting time is a good thing. Did that energy cost 
the switching between those two, did that ever start to make you feel like you were resenting one or the other? Like, man, this I is taking me away from my coaching or coaching is taking me away from my engineering. Um, I was never that disciplined of an engineer. I didn't really care that it was making me bad. <laughs> I was okay. I was replaceable. I knew that. I was only okay at this. And even though I didn't have the goal of starting this whole team thing, I still just cared about it so much that I just wanted to really do that well. I wanted to just check in, check out of, of engineering work. I never, I never felt that. I, I was never aware of it. Maybe I felt it, but it, maybe that means I was always meant to be coaching and I love doing that. I didn't care if my engineering stuff suffered, but I wasn't trying to do both optimally. Mm. I was really trying to coach really well and just get through engineering until I could leave and get back to was it your goal to get to a point in your life where you could coach optimally? Not until right before I quit my job. I remember me and Allie started talking about it. We knew I had to make a certain amount of money each month before it was just like like bare bones money, not equivalent to my engineering job money, to make it like the leap not suck so bad. Um, and I wasn't even close to that when we quit. I was really barely making anything. But we, I just had a bunch of successes in a row. We had a good Shamrock Shuffle and a good... We had a good series of races in Chicagoland, and then people ran well at this big marathon in Minnesota, and then we had someone qualify for the Olympic trials, then run really well at Western States 100 out in California, all in a row, and I was still working a job, and I went, I'm quitting now, the iron's really hot, I don't know, I'm not making a lot of money yet, but I can market this now as like, I'm, we're doing okay, and I'll have a lot more time if I just leave. So her job, I was really fortunate, listen, her job is, was super stable, making more money than me, and um, I was able to take a chance because of Allie. What Dan describes about working for free wasn't just a measure of his humility. It was a smart, strategic move. Not only did he learn on the job, he was essentially giving out free samples of his coaching style, creating buzz, and developing a brand, whether he was conscious of it or not. But at some point, in order to be a business, you have to start charging something for your goods and services. That transition can sometimes be an awkward one to make. So I asked Dan how he knew he was ready to move forward and start asking for money. Well, I want to talk about switching from being compensated with experience and being compensated with actual money. Because I mm. think a lot of people, that switch to go from this is purely a hobby, I'm not going to ask anyone to pay me a dime for this, to yeah. no, now I'm actually providing value and I think I'm entitled to be compensated for that. What was that switch like? How did you start justifying charging people for something that you had previously said, I wasn't providing enough I, value? I, it was kind of an arbitrary thing. I think the first time we charged was when I got an inquiry from someone who I didn't know, mm. but that was mine. But in, if, if anyone related to me or friends or friend of a friend or anyone at work asked, I just automatically did it. Because I was, if your connection to me was pretty clear, you might have not even felt obligated, but felt like it was a low barrier. But if you wanted to email a stranger to coach, they had thought about it and they were willing to do that. So that probably took three years of just coaching for free, coaching a lot. And I, I do want to drive that point home because I, I think a lot of folks – you know, you should be compensated for your time. You shouldn't hustle for free forever. But there, why would someone coach hire me right away? Why? I think there's a lot of entitlement too when you start up. Like, I look how much time I'm spending, but are you giving enough value to justify? Maybe you are. But I wanted to prove it for a lot of years and have some success. And then, okay, I'm charging you and I have success now. And we have a team and a system and a flow. And I don't know, it just felt like once the demand started to pick up and I got a a person who didn't know who I was just an inquiry through email. 
Did you rely on your mentors or even your father, who it sounds like had done some coaching in the past, to figure out, well, how much do I charge this person? A little bit. And I made it a number that was really, I knew it was way undervalued because I just wanted to like get a little, time, a little bit of money. Um, and you also, when someone starts paying you, they feel a little more, there's a more of a barrier to entry. When you're coaching for free, you do get lots of folks who miss their phone calls with you or they don't respond to texts because I'm not, I'm not giving a whole lot. I don't, it's, there's no barrier to entry and it's okay if they, yeah, they flake on this. It's for free. I don't need it. But if I'm going to pay for this, I, in order to even admit that you're, uh, uh, say you're going to do that, you probably have some level of... Um, you have a stake in the game. You yeah. have a stake in the game. Mm-hmm. So I did notice that commitment went up when I started charging and that was a good thing. And then it, I felt more obligation to be excellent and, and we kind of went from there. So you talk about how you had seen some pretty incredible results. You had a good Shamrock Shuffle. You had a great marathon in Minnesota. By that time, you said about 2025. 20, it was in the 20s. Yeah, about 25 yeah. people, I think. And can you think of the actual moment where you said, all right, that's it. I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go full time. Or was it yes. a series of moments? Every, every couple, that must've been in 2015. So every couple months in the winter. And in 2015, my wife and I had talked about January 1st of 2016. So about a year later, the goal was to make an X amount per month. Again, far below my engineering salary, but to justify, I think we can live off this. And we were so far below that. And every couple of weeks, I would text her after some like stupid ass scheduling meeting, going like, "I hate this. I can't do this. I need scheduling a coach for meeting at, w- at, at work. work. Mm-hmm. This, this sucks. I should be coaching." And then she go, "We have a plan. You're fine." And she was my therapist for a long time. <laughs> and then we started racing well in the winter of 2015, the spring of 2015. And again, I'm sending her these texts every time I'm like not able to coach at work. Getting pretty, now I'm getting frustrated. Now I'm seeing that the engineering work is getting in the way of me being the committed and present coach I wanted to be. But I had the total honor and uh, almost luck of coaching, I guess it's luck, of coaching my cousin, mm-hmm. Lauren Newman, who lived out in Boston and was going to Harvard Law School at the time. Uh, he qualified for the Western States 100. He went out and ran it. I was on his crew with him, and he finished 17th as a non-professional in his mm-hmm. second 100-mile race. I wrote the training. I paced him for the last seven miles. I felt a big stake in the race, and I was on the flight home. And again, kind of on the tail end of a pretty good streak of coaching results going, this is really stupid that I'm going to work tomorrow. I don't. I think I'm good at coaching, and I think I have to do this now. There's really no reason for me not to. So it was pretty obvious on this. I didn't, you know, when you crew a 100-mile race, you don't sleep. So I'm just like in this like haze of like – of like, of like uh, just uh, adrenaline, but also fatigue and in that, that phase that you get in when you're kind of on a, a bender of no sleep. But um, I knew then it was, it was time. So I gave my two weeks when I got to work. Wow. Yeah. What did that feel like the moment you gave your two weeks? Pretty good. I mean, when you tell your, you know, uh, white collar job that you're going to be coaching marathon runners to run marathons a little bit faster than they used to, they go, Sure. <laughs> Sounds kind of. We'll see dumb. you back in about I, six yeah, months. Yeah, we'll, we won't fill your spot. <laughs> That's fine. I, it was very weird. I mean, a lot of my um, people in my, I had about a 25 person work group. They knew I coached. I coached a lot of them in our work running groups. So they all kind of saw me doing it, but my direct superiors had no idea that, again, that this job even exists. People run marathons, but who's going to pay someone to help them run a little bit better than they used to be? It's a crazy job title, but it was a odd reception on on more what the hell is that then good luck maybe some both people often describe dream chasing as a leap of faith and while there is definitely a lot of risk taking involved with quitting a day job and starting your own business or even pursuing a totally different career path 
I'm a big believer in mitigating as much of that risk as you possibly can. Yes, yes, I soothe myself with excessive planning, but I was intrigued by Dan's allusion to the plan that he and Allie had developed. I want to go back to some of the planning that it sounds like you and Allie were doing. You had said that, okay, here's the threshold that we need to meet. It may not be as much as we would have made if Dan stayed at his nine-to-five job, but it's enough where we can get by. I think sometimes there's this misconception that when you're chasing your dream job or you decide to pursue a job that's more consistent with your passion, that it's just whatever, just be reckless and and just dive out the airplane and and see what happens, you know, no planning, you know, your back's against the wall, you hate your job and you just got to do it. But it sounds like to me that there was at least some pretty methodical thought that went into, well, what's the world going to look like once I do leave? We knew that worst case scenario, we, we could technically live on Allie's salary alone with me making zero you know, and we could do that. And then we also, you know, my family lives in the Chicago suburbs. Allie's in the Chicago suburbs. If something terrible happens, we can move in 30 miles away pretty easily. Um, we had, we had, had the very, again, the very high fortune of having um, most or all of our college paid for. So, again, we had some savings in the bank from college and early adult life. So, again, we were given a very nice padding by uh, a good upbringing and support uh, through family and just having good engineering jobs out of college that you run some numbers and know that even if, I make nothing. Allie can support for a few months or a year. And even if I uh, am not good at this, don't like it, not what I want to do. I have an engineering degree. I can probably get another job, even if it's not the same place. So I had a unique scenario where I look at the exits and went, those are all pretty appealing anyway if I have to. But I, at some point, there is a jumping off point when you go from, whether it's financially or just uh, leaving that stability of, of, a, of a nine to five and a place to go that even, even just missing colleagues and missing a home and losing those friends, that was really hard. I, I worked at home with just my dog for years and I still do. And that's hard, but doing what I want to do is great. Mm. I don't know where I was going with that, but here I am. <laughs> no, no, no. I think what we were talking about is when I, you had that padding around we you. We did. And we were very fortunate. So again, Engineering background meant the numbers were read pretty. We, we had some spreadsheets telling us we were going to be okay for a bit and some bailouts in case I sucked or I didn't like this. Well, I think that's exactly the way I did it. I had yeah. multiple spreadsheets. I knew exactly the numbers. Yeah, I had projections. Yeah. And and that's the thing is, I think it's I think there are multiple ways to to uh, you know go about dream chasing. It doesn't have to be this reckless thing that some people think it needs to be. It doesn't have to be this moment where you're cornered and you feel like you have no choice but to go after it. It can also be methodical. It can be a little bit risk averse if you want it to be. My point is that there isn't just one type of person that's allowed to chase their dreams. There are lots of different people who can do it in their own unique way. One of the things that I love about your story is that sounds like for the first couple of years, you were essentially coaching for free, which I don't know that you would have been able to do that without your engineering job. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah, t- totally good, good point. And I get a, a lot of, I do get a lot of co- people getting into coaching that are really shocked by that. Like my time is valuable. It is, but are enough people going to think it is, you know, it's valuable to you, but make sure that others are getting enough value and that you're building the um, education you need because you can get certifications and read books and it's all great, but you... I, I learned so much by just diving in and making mistakes, and I was really I was much more um, willing to make mistakes and convince someone else to trust me. 
if I'll hustle for you and all you got to do is post about me on Facebook. This is back in 2013 when people posted on Facebook a lot. They still Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you do well and if not, it's all good. Give, give them, give them a weight that's like, there's not much risk here for you. Let me hustle my ass off for you. And let's see what happens. And that was a lot of our early days. Well, I think that you raise a really good point because there is something to this idea of, well, I put in so much work into this. I studied so hard. I, you know, stayed up all night creating the spreadsheet for you. But if it doesn't produce results, uh, right. you know, and, and I'm not just talking about that you are, in fact, running faster. There can be all sorts of ways to measure your success at, at running. We talked with Amy Porterfield a couple of weeks ago. And she talks about what she calls her 10% edge. You don't need to be the eminent expert on any given subject in order to teach that subject. However, mm -hmm. she said there is one rule. You need to have results. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to point back at something and say, see, I get results in order to actually provide value such right. that you can start charging totally. for it. I had no results early. So how was I going to get someone to to trust me besides just, you know, leaving as little barrier as possible. And also to that point, uh, working, you know, there is a lot of talk around, um, you know, work-life balance and turning things on and off. I'm a big believer that if you do want to make a dream happen or a side hustle happen, there is a lot of the crazy nights, the, the $100 work weeks. I think for most things, you have to have a little period of time where you, you get to get a bonfire started. It has to be a ton of that, just grind it out, overnight working, <laughs> weekends, holidays, vacations, everything to get a really big dream off the ground. Eventually, you have to find a cruising altitude that is sustainable for a long time. But those early years were just a ton of, sorry, let's use the opposite word, no free time or casual time for, for you know, three to five years. Well, before we launch into the three to five years of no free time, <laughs> let's just go back to day one. Sure. You've just quit your job that you've mm -hmm. had now for a few years that you spent four years pursuing a degree for in college, and now you're your own boss. What was that first day like? Well, literally, it was the Big Ten 10K. There's a Big 10K in the city, so I quit on a I quit on a Friday, or I left on a Friday. It, maybe it was Sunday. It was one or two days later. We have, you know, 10 people go to this race, and I got to be there knowing this is kind of my job. So actually, when I was kind of boots on the ground there, it was pretty cool uh, to, to, <laughs> um, to know that what I'm doing now is, uh, is right in front of me and not like just something I do until my Monday commute starts again. The weird thing for me is I still feel this. I quit eight, I quit, uh, eight seven and a half years ago. It still feels the same. It feels like it, it was. It just segued right into coaching. I've been coaching for a long time. It's the same every week. I write plans. I have calls. I have a long run that I do with the team every week, and it's. It just felt like the same because I'd been doing the side hustle for so long with a job. I just got to drop engineering and take on more athletes, and it just. I don't know. It was very good dovetail for me. But there was something at least that couldn't have stayed the same because obviously you're no longer coaching 25 people, right? Like the number one up, you mean? Yeah. Overnight, it kind of didn't. So now I had more time to build out, like, let's chase some sponsors, some partners. Let's plan more detailed workouts and group runs. So I did have a lot less workload at first, but I now finally had time to do a macro. I was living so much, like, in the day, in the week. I had no wiggle room because I was commuting and working and having a a work life as well. And then all of a sudden I had a time to go, okay, if I, I'm doing this now, can we make this group of individual people I coach a team? Can there be a brand behind the team? So we 
got Under Armour as an early sponsor for the team? Um, can we have group runs located places? We all all of a sudden started to think of it as a three-dimensional like living thing, and now I had the bandwidth to breathe oxygen into the fire a little bit, and that started pretty early. Um, Allie always helped me with that kind of backside stuff, but that's what was the initial thing that I really committed myself to was, let's do this for real now. Thus far, we've talked a lot about Dan's evolution as a coach, the transition from helping to power people's homes to empowering people, period. But I wanted to explore the next evolution, becoming a business owner. When did you start thinking of yourself as not just a coach, but as the owner of a business? Oh, man. Uh, I still I still do. I feel that's Allie. <laughs> she, she's the uh, everything with the business, the owner, the creative director, the, uh, you know, organizer, the, the team manager, uh, and I'm and I'm the coach, even though we both kind of co-own it. Um, it's always been a weird title for me because um, it's it's the coaching side that comes so naturally and the business side that doesn't. So I'm very fortunate to have someone who thinks kind of the opposite. She mm-hmm. is more uh, business and analytics and uh, making sure that the, that the numbers always work for us. So I'm very fortunate to have a partner who wears that hat, honestly. So when you That's think hard... about innovating for your business, when you think about innovating for the coaching company that you and Ali co-run, I mean, what is that in response to? Is that more just the same kind of Dan intuition of, I want to try this new thing, experiment with it, and see what happens? Or is it more like, hey, I would like Under Armour to come and be a sponsor, or I want to start thinking more three-dimensionally about our presence and what it means to the community, running, you know, and all of that. Is that, again, more of just, hey, I just like running and I want to experiment, or are we thinking more of an enterprise of how are we going to position what we've created? I definitely had good experiences with my high school and, and college coaches in running, but I noticed uh, I was part of some pretty big teams. I was part of a very big numbers team in high school. And then, again, a, a pretty big Division I uh, uh, cross-country and track program that I, I, I had good workouts written for me, but the individual touch side wasn't there um, that, that I was hoping to see. Um, and then I get into the real world, and I see um, kind of a similar thing, but that's how it's supposed to be. A lot of run clubs, 20, 30, 50, 100 people get together – there's no real coaching. We just might do a long run, might do an easy run with a beer after. Good community and energy, not a lot of like high-focused training direction. On the flip side, we noticed there's a lot of individual marathon coaches, you know, virtual coaches. I'll give you a plan and I'll have a call with you and I'll, I'll coach, you know, Joanne Molinaro. But do you have a team? Do you have an, a synergistic energy, a group workouts? Maybe, but they're not really, uh, again, three-dimensional and, and hardy. We noticed that. We were coaching people. It seemed like teams were shaded one direction or the other. And I said, I, once we saw that, we said, I think we can do both really well and kind of fill a space. Uh, I, I like to lead groups, but I also love that one-on-one experiment part. I think that's a, a place we can go. So I, I tried to match up what I like doing uh, amongst what we saw was maybe just a gap in Chicago or with how I'd seen other, other teams and clubs being run. So I guess it was just matching, yeah, it was matching um, desire and uh, and a gap in the space. Yeah. So it sounds like it was something that you noticed. I wish I'd had. Yeah. As something, as a solution to a problem that you'd had when you were younger. I started coaching my team. Like, I, I never talked to my college coach every week. And I, he had 20 athletes. I didn't talk to him individually outside of, like, practice time. I said, I always wish my coach would have, like, an, an open office hour. And so you have to come to see me on a Monday. We'll grab a cup of coffee. We'll just talk about life and because I'm, I'm as an engineering student if I had three tests that week in a big 
project, my workouts were going to suck a little bit more that week because of my life. I wish my coach knew that. I really did. And I think I could have told them that. So that's why I started doing a weekly call with every athlete I coach. 15 minutes, no matter what. I don't care how busy Joanne is with her, with her Korean vegan <laughs> stuff or with being a lawyer. We're going to talk because if I'm going to coach you, I can't just write your runs. I got to know, oh, you were stressed from this big big thing you had to do. You had a, you know, a deadline with your book. That's going to affect your long runs. And so I saw that gap going. I don't think a lot of coaches really want to dig into someone's life and dig on the emotional side. Uh, or the holistic side of running being a slice of someone's life. So I was very passionate about that, really driving running performance as it's a holistic uh, experience. What drove that passion? Where did you see results that merited your attention to that holistic approach? Just doing it right away. I, Again, it probably actually was coaching my girlfriend because I obviously knew her life very well. She was an engineering student in Illinois. We hung out all the time, same friend group. So I knew I knew if she was sick, if she had a big deadline, if she was traveling, I knew. And because I wish I had happened for me in high school and college, I said, you know what? I'm going to adjust her training for her life. She's even running great. Doesn't seem to warrant a change or a back down. We're going to back this down. Or she's a really light week and she's like ready for it. I'd amplify it just because her life had the space. So for me, and it's probably just life advice, it's everything works together. And so I think like emotional awareness and um, being very real with yourself. I've all, early in my coaching career, I heard that being self-aware is one of the best traits you can have as a human. And I try to base, when I don't know what to do, I just try to get super self-aware. How am I feeling? What are my emotions? What's my week or day or year been like? And I can usually put something together and then start some sort of idea or solution for a problem or an issue I'm having or just being stressed. Oh, yeah, that's why. And I, when I started doing that with my girlfriend and then close friends and other people I was close to, I saw this matters. And most adults aren't training as professionals. They have their doctors, lawyers, moms, dads. They're stressed. They, have, they get sick. And so it was a passion of mine to coach human beings who were runners. Mm. Have you coached any professionals? Uh, no, I've coached some folks who've made the Olympic trials, but that's something that you can do as a real person. But no, most folks that good are uh, are elsewhere than Chicago. Would you be able to take that sort of holistic approach, um, almost like a life running balance approach with a professional? I think you can. They're, they're going to have a lot more of a controlled experiment. I mean, there's absolutely times where they are stressed with relationships and other things, but they are living probably with or near other runners. They have sponsors and um, and other things. And of course, there are some professionals who still have to work other jobs. They you might call themselves a pro runner and get a very small stipend and and uh, very small uh, help, but also have kids and a normal nine to five and, and be grinding it out that way. I, I, I think everyone needs to be um, that way. They need to, really need to work how you put running into your life and not fit life into your running. It gets, mm. and I think we could substitute running out for a lot of things and making sure that your passion, your job, your whatever fits into your life and not the other way around, maybe in some small instances. But uh, again, when someone's balanced their life, it usually means their individual slices of life go a lot better if they balance the scales a little bit more mindfully. So when you have these 15-minute calls with your runners and your athletes, are you getting into the nitty-gritty of Tell their- me. <laughs> No, you tell me. (laughs) No, I do think that we get – sometimes I feel like it's a little mini therapy session. I mean, we'll talk about running, but sometimes we don't talk about running. And I've always appreciated that about our chats. And I think it makes 100% 
sense to take that sort of into account when you're building a running plan for someone, particularly if they're not a professional. I used to have this conversation with my therapist all the time. She's like, are you a professional bodybuilder? Are you a professional runner? Because if you are, I can understand why you're demanding this level of discipline. But she's like, but you're not. You're a professional lawyer. And that is your job. Your job is not to be a bodybuilder or to be, you know, such that you need to eat this many calories a day and work out this many minutes a day. She's like, you sound like somebody who does this for a living when you don't. And I think that's really important is building, like you said, a space in your life for your running, your athletic pursuits, or whatever your passion is, instead of the other way around, trying to find time for life. (laughs) Right. Which a lot of runners, you know, we've both been there where like I was really concerned about fitting something into either coaching or running and like my son could use my attention or like I got to meet with going to a family thing now, but my run's not done. Maybe sometimes it's okay to be a human being or I have a coach who, okay, you know what? You missed that run, Joanne. I'm going to help you move. Let's move it around somewhere. Let's put it around your travels, your life, your work obligations, that blizzard that's coming in. My job is to help you fit the running in best you can not stress about it, and just be a complete person and have running be a part of that. It's much healthier. You'll be faster. You'll enjoy it more. You'll lessen the expectations on yourself. And then I think nearly every runner on the planet can benefit from that no matter how good you are. As I mentioned earlier, Dan has coached me through multiple races, including four marathons. In preparation for Indy Monumental in 2018, Dan scheduled a one-hour in-person chat with me, as he did with all his athletes leading up to a race. Over a steaming hot latte at Pete's, I asked him, how do you run without pain, especially towards the end of the marathon? And he looked at me for a second and said, Joanne, you can't run without any pain. It's going to hurt. Those last few miles, I'm not going to lie to you and pretend that there's no pain. There's always some level of pain in a marathon. You've got to learn to lean into that pain instead of running away from it. That small chat was one of the most important lessons in mental toughness I ever had, but not because it made me a better, faster runner. It did. I PR'd in that marathon. But because what it taught me about being aware of and accepting my own feelings instead of just trying to run from them. We hear a lot about mental toughness, particularly in long distance running, but I think it applies to just about every aspect of running because short or long, I feel like it's all painful. And I think mental toughness is one of those things that many runners talk about, blog about, write about, and I'm sure many coaches even talk about. But what role does mental health play Mm. in running? Took a sidestep on me there. (laughs) Um, It's huge. This is probably something, you know, I I don't don't phrase it as mental health. I'd call it like emotional awareness or emotional control. Anyone that's on my team listening to this will will, uh, know that I mentioned that about every five minutes now. Enormously. I mean, I I want, I think a lot of people think that, you know, running running is part of their emotional wellness. So they, they have to run to feel whole. Uh, you know, so I want you to be okay with it. If you don't run, you're, you're still okay. You're still a good human being, Joanne, or whoever is running. You're okay. You have, have other outlets. But I want people to really, and part of the weekly calls is working on being aware of your emotions, not fighting them, but more like acknowledging them, embracing them, and learning how to process them. Because going back to the term mental toughness, being tough or being brave is not the lack of fear or anxiety or anything. It is knowing how to accept those natural emotions and 
process them calmly. So if you want to be a good runner or just a good human, for me, it always starts with being aware of your emotions and sitting with them, which is kind of a big you know, topic these days is being kind of stoic and aware. So as a runner and as a human, I'm just getting big on not rushing through life, again, with either you know, phone checking, social media checking. We rush through so many things and can't sit with anything anymore. For me, it's learning how to sit with your emotions and process them um, in a way that's healthy so that running can fit in. You don't have to like, go bash out your feelings when you run. That sometimes works, but can just add more gas to the fire. So hopefully we can all work on slowing down and not neglecting feelings, but feeling them and knowing that's part of being healthy is feeling everything and learning to process if that answered any of that. No, I think what is really remarkable about your weekly chats and I say this from my own experience, but also from speaking with many of my teammates, is that you do elicit our anxieties mm. instead of suggesting that we pocket them away and just go for a run. Just <laughs> rub some sand in it, go for a run. And one of the things that I know you and I have chatted about, of course, is, is my anxiety over my body and eating and, and the role that eating and food plays in running. One of the reasons that I've always said, you know, joining the team was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And part of that is because it taught me to view food as something purely unrelated to the shape of my body. Mm. I literally cannot run 13 miles if I don't put food into my body. <laughs> it's just not possible. It is, it is a functional thing that I absolutely require in order to meet my athletic endeavors. We've seen now with you know, the, the story of Mary Kane, which came out a few years ago, and all of the ensuing stories, particularly from women athletes, but even from male athletes, the dysfunction that often attends a career in running and how that relates to their bodies, the shape of their bodies, the size of their bodies, the weight of their bodies. Have you come across that in your own experience as a coach? And if so, how do you mm. address and tackle those issues? Wow. Uh, absolutely. And I'm really happy. We have work to do, but I'm happy as a community that we, we talk about this more. Just about, you know, being stronger is a good thing. Lifting weights is a good thing. Eating before, during, and after runs is a good thing. It's Yeah, you priority. tell me to eat like literally every day. <laughs> I, I try to tell, I do tell people it's probably the only time I yell at athletes <laughs> or get anywhere upset with them is when they're not fueling or or, you know, or doing that because, you know, not to get into coaching weeds too much, but half of our job is to work out really hard and the other half Quite literally, the other half of the job is to, you know, uh, build up the breakdown. If you break your body down and don't eat after or during, all of a sudden a hurricane rolls through the city, and you say, "Well, I don't need to give any supplies to build this thing back up and learn a lesson from the hurricane." Why give give the carpenters and the builders something to work with in your body? My job is to open these doors. So on the kickoff call with every athlete I have, we just I just ask about any dietary beliefs more as a, a, a fire starter to go, "Okay, well, on this team we believe in." Quantity over quality, during runs, before runs, after runs, eating a lot of food. There is no racing weight. Just being very mindful of your food intake. And I sometimes will ask, have you ever had any just you know thoughts about your own body image or, or being reluctant to eat during some periods of the year, times of the day? And I just want to talk about it. I always give space if you um, don't want to tell me that's great, but I am here for that. And so, again, part of the uh, behind-the-scenes thing is I, I, the weekly calls is, to just, is also just to build trust for me. Mm. I want the athletes I coach for years and years to trust me. And usually, if I just keep the door open for long enough, if, if I think something's not right, we'll just end up talking about it. I'll just know, you didn't eat a lot after that run, did you? Why was that? And I'll, you know, 
Maybe I'm more of a therapist like that, but I'll, I'll get them to, t- to tell me when they're ready. And I just want to keep that not as a taboo subject. The fueling is part of our running, like any workout or any lifting or any regimen. It's another one of the bricks that we stack on this team. One of the beautiful things about the team, of course, is its diversity. I mean, I remember the first time I talked to you, I think, in person. I was like, hi, do you take <laughs> runners of all levels or is it? do you have to be at a certain speed? And you said very quickly, no, no, we have no threshold requirements and speed. We take runners of all levels. And I am assuming, based upon your team makeup, that that remains true. Right now, there's a wait list where actually it is a little bit higher end. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I, I got squeezed in, no. grandfathered in. <laughs> uh, we, the honest truth is we have such a small amount of turnover. We do have folks joining the team right now, but um, I'm pretty much at the capacity for my own ability, but also just how big the runs are now. Again, we, we, we are a little higher on the speed side, but there's not a lot of turnover. So the well, team is kind of the same team as it was three, four years ago, honestly. It's not that different. That's beautiful. Yeah. What was your first group one? How many people showed up for your first group run? We were doing, I mean, when I first started coaching Allie uh, in, uh, in 20, 2009 or 10, I would bike alongside her for her bigger runs. When I started coaching the next person, and one of the person people I started coaching very early was a colleague from Sergeant Lundy, Caleb, who you you and Anthony know, uh, I would coach, I'd bike with both of them. If Caleb was a little bit ahead, I'd bike up with him with some fluids, talk to him for a mile or two, drop back with Allie, then it became three, then it became four. I did a lot of like one and two person bike rides mm-hmm. where I'd be with someone for three hours, just that, me and them. <laughs> and that's kind of where I learned how to talk to uh, people for long periods of time. And they were very small at first where I could really spend a lot of time on the run being like super intimate conversation and joking and just even in silence for a long time and just building that bond. It started super small, uh, two, three, four, five for years. And then this morning, how many people showed up for the run? We probably had 60. Oh my gosh. That's incredible, Dan. I mean, how that must make you feel so good. It's cool. I try to say that we are a we're an individually focused team, but we are absolutely a team now, and that's where my joy comes from. So I definitely pour myself into the individual side. I want to know who Joanne is and what makes you tick and why you're feeling the way you are, but I I spend a lot of time thinking about making new people feel welcome and how do I keep innovating or tightening up the screws for if you've been here for five, six, seven years and the partnerships and making this making this whole ship sail a little smoother. So I do put the uh, team hat on a lot because having a big team is awesome but takes a lot of work. But it's a total joy now having that many folks trusting me and trusting each other. Is it difficult training all kinds of different athletes at different levels? I mean – even on these group runs, you have to give pacing to and, and you know specific goals to different groups of people. Is it difficult to do that in a cohesive way? I think so. But after this many years of doing it, it just seems like what we do. Yeah, I think it goes back to the engineering stuff. I like figuring out, well, if this person starts now and that person starts there and the paces and the, long, and the, and the groups and how can I see them with the water and then different numbers and Every week I send out an email that has the details of the weekend long run, as you've probably gotten many dozen of those. <laughs> and that takes us several hours to write every week because I want to know like where I have to be, where the team's going to be. Am I going to pick up someone at this mile and drive them in because they started or they ended early and the group needs to get them back in? So I like that that's hard and I like that I overthink it kind of. I, I just like that it's not everyone go run 16 miles and I'll see you back there. We take pride that we think about everyone's workout and it's it's what they need with, within their smaller group that breaks down during the run. 
that's just part of it that we kind of like that grind. A good coach needs to be able to produce results, and Dan's got the kind of track record that produces a wait list. Being at the end of a finish line when one of his athletes PRs is amazing. Believe me, I've been there. But perhaps the most honest testament to Dan's coaching abilities is how he deals with an athlete's disappointment or failure, not just for the athlete, but for himself. I can imagine the joy and even that adrenaline rush that you feel when one of your athletes, you know, PRs, performs at their expectation or often exceeds their expectation. But take us through what it's like when an athlete underperforms, mm. doesn't meet their goal, the one that you've been working three months towards. Yeah. Like, how does that feel like? To me personally? Yeah. While I do talk a lot about emotional control and being calm and your life is holistic, I mean, I, I absolutely feel that disappointment. I normally try to give myself, like, you know, I see a result on my phone or I'm physically there and I see it in front of my eyes. I try to have some time to myself and give myself space to process emotions, like let myself feel sad and disappointed or even, you know, frustrated with an athlete if they did something wrong. Or, or I give myself space to feel that. And then again, I don't rush through it or like shun it out and say, be positive. No, let myself feel sad or upset or, and then, and then keep it in context and take away some lessons. And then I try to see them or call them or text them relatively soon if it was a big race, of course. And help them help them process their emotions because you know, I mean, I can get over this in a few minutes. If you run a big marathon after years, you're not getting over that thing 90 seconds after you cross the finish line. That can be an hour, a day, a week, a month of processing. So I'm going to help you just like grieve. So my job turns into like, let me give me a few minutes to process it, but I'm soon going to go into what can I give the athlete to no lessons, no teaching right away. It's here's a shoulder to cry on. You did great with what you had. We can learn from this. But give yourself some space and give yourself some grace and some space right now. There's a bumper sticker. Is it difficult having to have that level of positivity and encouragement pretty much at least 12 hours a day? I mean, while you're with your athletes, I sometimes when I listen to you talk to me, I'm like, man, I feel so bad for Dan. He always has to be so positive all the time. And I imagine that he's riddled with anxiety and insecurity and all of the same things that I feel on a daily basis. Where does he get, channel some of that? I get asked that all the time and I'm really good at compartmentalizing. I don't base my self-worth off of how you run. Mm. And that took me a long time because I was such a high-touch coach at first, like in writing individual strength routines and individual run assignments that were super detailed for years very early. It's become a little more homogenized to a team flow now, even though there is individualistic stylist, uh, stylings and all them. But if, if someone runs like, crap, I give myself a few minutes and then I go, I couldn't control that. I, I can influence it. And more life advice, the chief task in life is determining what I can control and what I cannot control. I obsess with the things I can control. For me, that's my effort, my attitude. Everything else, if I can't control it, I can let it wash off me and go, it doesn't affect me. I can only control how I react to that. Mm. And I try to ask myself that like every few minutes of my life. And so every phone call, if you have a bad day, got sick, got hurt, I can only influence it. You're a human outside of me. So I can say positive because that's all I can control. It's my attitude. I've always said that without Anthony, even if I might still be able to do what I do, it wouldn't be nearly as fun nor rewarding. We've heard Dan talk about Allie throughout this podcast, and I wanted to shine the spotlight on her for a minute and what she means to building their successful business. I want to talk now about the less visible 
partner to this entire enterprise. You have referred to we almost throughout this entire chat. And by that, I'm assuming you're talking about Allie, your, mm-hmm. your wife, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. And she was your first client. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was your first experiment. Oh, man, she was the beta test. <laughs> yeah, she was the beta. <laughs> At what point did she become less of a client and more of a partner to you in this? So she's, all, she's never been a coach on the team, but she's always helped me. I mean, she she majored in general engineering, which is really more the business side of engineering. But I always consider her like a professional problem solver. And that's what she was doing professionally before the team in some kind of uh, internship roles, but especially just out of school. She worked for uh, General Mills then worked for a small uh, fintech firm in the city. And to me, it always seemed like she was do- doing specific projects, but really taking problems and either making them a little bit cheaper, a little more efficient, helping get rid of one little step or thing and making them as smooth and wrinkle-free as possible. So that's always what she's done here is help me do things quicker, help me do things more optimally, put out fires, have the difficult tasks or the um, things with either partners or sponsors. Or She is the, the coal behind what we do on the train here for sure. And when did it switch over? How did it switch over? I coached her pretty much from, again, that 2009-10 timeframe most of the time until maybe about 2017, 2018, I was, even when we were married, even when we were getting, you know, uh, closer to having a child, uh, still wrote her weekly plans and we lived together for all these years. And then eventually, again, being a runner for so long, eventually I, she just needed a break and needs to not do it anymore. And she quit her job in 2018, I believe. And that's, again, maybe not coincidentally why she took a step back from running and just full-time job, being a team manager, website upkeep, partner partner uh, liaison, everything was really through her besides me being the front of the coaching side. She was just the, uh, the furnace behind everything else. Mm-hmm. What was that like as a family, making that decision that one of the, you know, predictable paychecks or the only predictable paycheck in this family would then also be eliminated so that she could join the business? For me, it was equally... Equally stressful from a risk or um, from like, hey, we have to drop some inc- major income here because she was a, uh, an established engineer. But we we now had proven the concept for a long time. She quit in 2018. Again, I'd quit three years ago. I'd been doing it with big team runs and and team partners and you know other backers and or like just again other other businesses that believed in us for a long time. Now we knew the odds of it tanking were fairly low. And again, the same mm. families were around, but we knew the finances would be tough for a six, 12, 18 months, but we could build it. We knew that if we had her behind me doing all the organizing I was trying to do and that she was trying to do as like a, uh, <laughs> just moonlighting for that. If she could do it full time now, I could take on more athletes. I could have more mental headspace. I could work on other things there. And we, we, we knew we could take on more athletes now. So that was again, some financial hit, but also a little, we knew we would, with a little more certainty, it was going to come back. Mm. So it was a very strategic decision. It wasn't yeah. just, oh, Allie saying, I want to be part of this now full time. <laughs> I think we had a number we wanted to hit or just number of athletes or something like that, or really maybe prove how much per week I was doing outside of coaching and say, here's what you would start with and how you could build that. Or you could have the, these leads to get a new partner and that'd be what you work on now. Yeah, it was pretty strategic. And we knew, again, at that point, that was not much of a risk. We, we knew this concept had been proven and we were super passionate about her organizing something for a living, me experimenting and, and doing that whole thing for a living. And 
Again, that's, we're such a yin-yang in that way that we both like the thing that the person doesn't like as much. Uh, and compartmentalize even... People text me all the time, can you do this for me? I'm like, text Allie, even mm-hmm. though I'm like four feet from her. We know our roles really well, and we and we lead this team with kind of um, complementary skill sets. One of the things that I always think is interesting when one partner decides, hey, I'm going to quit the predictable paycheck job that you entered into our relationship with, <laughs> and I'm going to pursue a business, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to become an entrepreneur is the range of reactions I think people receive from their partner. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting the sense from you that Allie has, by and large, always been super supportive. But did she ever voice any concerns or doubts or, Dan, Dan I don't know if this is really the thing? I mean, to be candid, I've, I've, I've always been pretty good at this. And it grew pretty slowly at first. So it was always like, sure, you're good, but we have a few people paying you to do this every month and it's not that much money. And there's no insurance and there's no all these other things that come with a great company like Sergeant Lundy and all the, all the, you know, the padding it gives you to, um, to be with them. Um, her, hers was you have the, like, the talent or the, the potential to do it, but we have to make some numbers work. So she was like, very black and white. If we can get this here, sure. And I'd push on her to be a little softer with it and she didn't budge for a long time. And then eventually... The levy broke uh, <laughs> because I, I think I helped her change her expectations, which was a leap of faith for her when we just – as I think the scenario changed, we went from being pretty good to being very good. Um, and she let her you know, n- numerical science side go and go, okay, we had this number, but there's also an art side of like it's going really well, momentum. Can we maybe have you leave early just to take advantage of how well it's going? She had concerns, but only with finances, making sure that things made sense numerically, but not that we couldn't – build the rocket ship and, and drive it together. Mm-hmm. And did she go through, it sounds like, the same sort of process when it came time for her to jump ship? A little bit. We kind of knew that was going to happen, though, because it was, again, we've built fairly regularly, like month after month, year after year, until we kind of plateaued recently with team membership, you know, for six, seven, eight years. So when you start seeing it for five years, you know, okay, in a year, we know how it's going to go. You can probably quit there. It's scary, but again, a lot more predictability through the experiment we've been running for for five years. So not as much anxiety on that one. What's it like working with your partner every single day? <laughs> your life partner, now your business we, partner. Uh, I love her so much uh, that this works really well because we love spending time together all the time. And we work in our house and we have a son here. So we're just in our house all day. He has daycare three days a week. But it's besides that, it is the same thing every day, you know, besides giving ourselves time on the weekends. Uh, things that help, we definitely give each other things. We don't really run together because that's time for ourselves. I cover with childcare and let her do some things, even just selfishly to go walk the dog without us, mm-hmm. get coffee without us, and she the same for me to go see friends or go have our own lives outside of that. So it's more, those don't sound like big things, being very purposeful with making sure you have time, even even if it's a weekend and it's us three hanging out, that's great time, but it, it kind of can feel like it's the same thing. So we do a lot of family time, but also a lot of, Allie and the dog time, Dan and the dog time, Allie and a friend time. We make really make sure that everyone's you know emotional and mental cup is filled because if we just kind of float through life a little bit, given our scenario, we get a little burned out. We love each other, but the doldrums of just being in the same day all the time can kind of get you. So we try to give each other the freshness and that that relief sometimes from having an outlet besides each other. You mentioned kind of earlier in our conversation that one of the things – that you've been thinking about lately is your role as a new father mm. and 
the introduction of running into your son's life, it sounds like your father did it in a fairly natural, kind of organic way. It wasn't like shoved into your face. You must run. You must do this like it was for me. <laughs> My dad like forces to play tennis every Sunday morning. Um, I don't know if I do that. <laughs> yeah, it was not great. <laughs> but... What does that look like right now? What is the thinking behind how to, or if at all, introduce Ben to running, especially because it's not just something that you're passionate about, but it is literally the I family know, business. And it's, it's, a little, it's a little concerning if that if we're not purposeful about how this goes, that it could be accidental and like, this is what you do and this is what we do. Take auto, it for auto, granted. Automatically, yeah. right. Like, when are you going to start running, Ben? <laughs> he's two years old, so he's not 10 and like learning actual things yet besides, you know, again, picking up hopefully habits and, and, and demeanor from us, but I hope to teach him, you know, good character and, and to be active and to, uh, again, be in touch with his emotions. So again, he's a two-year-old, so all he is is emotional, but trying to even now just introduce emotional control, which is how it's crazy, but just starting to talk about it. I know you're feeling frustrated. I know you're feeling angry. Can I teach you that now? I'm not going to teach you to run now, but I can teach you that now. Um, I can teach you about habits and, hey, every night before we go to bed, we brush our teeth and we clean up our toys. And that's a structural thing that I want to teach him early in his life. Is he absorbing all of it at two? Probably not, but eventually it'll click and I don't want to be waiting for when it does happen. Mm. So we're trying to just do things that are um, more like, you know, teach him good character or, and, and good habits. And the things that are going to be structurally there when he's an athlete, a student, a human, um, a person who's very accepting, embracing of all people. Um, I want to just set set those little supports right now. And if it leads into running, awesome. And if he's a great student because those things, awesome. And if he finds his way a different way or has different outlets, great. But I'm going to try not to control where he goes, just that he's a good person and has some uh, moral fiber as he does it. That's the hope. I think that's the hope of every parent, uh, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> if there was one thing you wish you knew when you decided to start DW running, whether it was about coaching or it was about running a business or it was about working with athletes, what is that thing? I think it is that in it's it's what we do best now. I think, uh, and I always kind of knew it, but I probably would have gone in on it more early. Uh, is that you know in, in this. In this day and age, we have more ways to kind of inorganically connect. And I think what's kept us afloat and kept our demand so high is that I tried to organically connect via, via voice, via team meetings, being making time to get a coffee with someone who's in dire straits or just needs a, a buddy, um, making doing that right away. So uh, uh, to other entrepreneurs or folks that want to just go for things, you might not see a direct way to find organic connections with people or think it's part of your business, your idea, your higher... Uh, even a better partner or better or a pe- you know uh, employee or something it's searching for those organic connections which are way more rare or less deep than they ever were because we can we can find skirt arounds i wish i'd gone all in on personal connection f- right away i think i was but i realized it i started learning it and went wow this is everything i can't just start copy and pasting and mass doing this and just getting a big team with no connection that's been my takeaway is it it's a it's a diminishing resource these days, and I think people that can really do well at connection are the folks that will. It's one of the reasons you're successful is you connect with people. Wow. What I mean, what a way to stand apart this day and age when everything is about how can we scale, how can we do this more efficiently, how can I leverage social media, right. which we will reach, yeah. yeah, I'm going to reach a million time. people instead of 10 people by doing it this right. way. 
but the cost, of course, to that is this organic connection where you right. where you get to go deep instead of wide. There was absolutely a play where we could have built this to be hundreds of people big with enormous workouts. I think it could have been really cool, but those things already kind of exist. You can go to runs in Chicago where there's hundreds of people. You can, which and it's so cool, but I'd be doing something that already exists. Or you can mass coach thousands of athletes, and again... Is it making more money? Is it having more influence? Is it being nationwide? Maybe. that Those things already exist, but I saw that having a super high connection, super high, like personal connection with every athlete emotionally, I didn't see it done at any sort of scale, and I thought I could do that. So I, I think a lot of people can, can work on that side of whatever they're passionate about is remembering that it's a really rare thing now to have that with who you're buying something from, what book you're buying. Uh, you know, who's behind the Instagram or, or, or who you're hiring for this. That personal connection, we all don't have as much as we did 10 or 20 years ago. No, that's the thing is maybe 50 years ago when people were running their business, that was everything, yeah. that personal connection. It's with attention, your, the yeah. ultimate commodity now. Exactly. And now it's turned into exactly what you just said. It's been commodified to an unrecognizable degree where we now take it for granted that personal attention is not something that anyone right. is entitled to. I'm on hold with a computer. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what we've tried to let go. Never I, the hardest days of my week are Mondays and Tuesdays. I talk to every athlete. Again, emotionally get drained from eight to eight a.m. to six p.m. But it's the reason that it's the lifeblood of the team is again the personal connection. I know that I need to be in tune with everyone and mm. give them give them that. Well, speaking of you know, keeping it about personal connection, what do you see as the future for DW running? This, I, I think we've found where we're going to cruise now. Having a team that where you know who's going to be at practice n- next week, next month, next year, having partners that you that you were that were here three years ago that you you start to know the people that work at these running stores and with these companies and like having this turn into more and more of a family. Um, again, we don't have a lot of turnover, so I like the days when there's all you know in the kind of in, the, in this winter phase where a few new folks have joined. But again, it's very few. It was nice when it was turning over when you guys joined because it was new faces and new mm-hmm. friends, and that was kind of cool. But we are really this family who is kind of in it together now. So I think the future is like just tightening the bonds and trusting each other more and um, being more vulnerable with each other. And um, and also I think uh, something I want to tackle this year specifically is we are a very tight knit team. People also hire a running coach when they are busy. You know, lawyers and doctors and moms and dads they don't have a lot of extra time. I think if we've had a shortcoming, it's we have not integrated ourselves in the greater Chicago band running community as much as I'd like to. Part of it's been my hustle, you know, getting married and starting this and having a son, but it's time that we reach out to other run clubs and coaching services and other groups and go, let's all be lift a rising tide lifts all ships type of thing. So I want to be better at that this year, not being a vacuum, but to help empower uh, other runners and athletes too. So I think that'd be a personal challenge to uh, myself and the team. Mm. If you had any advice for somebody who's thinking in their mind right now, I've never run so much as a mile, or it's been 20 years since I last, you know, put my foot out on a track, or I'm not a runner, I'm not a runner, but there's also a part of them that says, but maybe I could be. Yeah. Maybe I could be. What would you tell them? I don't think you necessarily have to uh, hire a coach. Again, that's a pretty, can be a high cost thing. Again, a higher barrier than you need. Um, but it'd be finding some sort of plan. Is it a 
someone you know who has a kind of a free plan or you saw this or something light, you know, and beginner to follow. Maybe getting an accountability partner. Hey, a brother, sister, friend, if we start this thing together, would you do it with me? Make a really, a goal that seems almost like embarrassingly low. It's not worthy of your time. Don't set any expectations. I'm going to do this local 5K. I'm going to run one timer on my block, which is a half a mile by the end of the month. I don't know, make a low-hanging fruit type thing because momentum is a runner's best friend. And too many runners go, even advanced runners go, if I'm not at the top of Everest, is the climb even worth it? Mm. We all struggle with that. We get out of shape. We get sick. How do I restart this thing? Do something super right in front of your eyes. Kind of get a little bit better by next week or next month or next year. Build so that confidence. Build that confidence. Momentum. Once We've all been in that momentum state where I have months behind me. How do you start that with quite literally a single step? So an accountability partner can be really anyone or anything. Even just on a big poster in your, in your kitchen, what days you've run to start something tangible or a text with someone, plan of some sort, that's very light and seemingly too easy. Not forgetting that you're an athlete too, so you might have not a run plan, but you might do some strength classes or some very light, uh, again, strength and mobility work or a core workout, something to do besides running. It'll give you more of a tune with your body and no expectations. It will never be linear. You won't be necessarily better in a week or a month. It's like the stock market. In time, it normally goes up, but expect volatility and to just enjoy every day that you do it. It's mm-hmm. it's really about that too. You said, yeah. I think you said one thing, you have like a thousand things. <laughs> But you're a coach. <laughs> I know. I'm an over-talking coach. You're not over-talking at all. Well, is there anything else that you would love to share with our audience, many of whom are runners, many of whom are more aspiring runners? Mm. My favorite topic these days is something we've already uh, uh, dove into. Uh, I guess I have two favorite topics, each spurred by uh, a series of books I've read. If you're looking to be a really good runner in this day and age, a really good book to read that is not specific to running is Deep Work by Cal Newport. Do you know Cal, by the way? Mm-hmm. Uh, Deep Work is essentially about how the, the commodity that is losing the, uh, the most right now is uh, the ability to work deeply in a flow state. Mm. The world's problems are getting bigger and bigger, and uh, people's attention spans are getting smaller and smaller. So if you get good at working in a flow state, odds are you'll, you'll be a better employee, better father, better you know, whatever your task is. So as runners, we do these long, boring things. Yes. And we're very bad <laughs> at doing long, boring things. I read Deep Work and went, this is a running book. If you get good at putting your phone down, at not answering email, at not being in the car with the music or a podcast on all the time and learning how to manage thoughts and emotions, you'll be a better marathoner. Yeah, I suck at that. <laughs> yes. You have that monkey brain when you're yes. in, in the car and you want to put anything on. I cannot have blank space in my right. brain. <laughs> but if we embrace that as a weakness, because we say that's there's so much entertainment around, what if you could embrace that as a uh, as something to work on? And I think as marathoners, as runners, but also, again, being a present parent, being a present person at work where you can sit on this project for 45 minutes and get a quiet flow going, that's the ultimate thing in 2023 which ties into um, you know, a lot of push on kind of modern day stoicism, the things by Ryan Holiday now, you know, the obstacle is the way and stillness is the key. All these books that kind of work on being still, being in touch with your emotions. Again, it very much for me is tied into that deep work philosophy. You can find all kinds of stuff on how to train, right and hire a coach and that's great. But most coaches I don't think really dive into, great, when you're 16 miles into a 22 miler and it sucks, what are you going to do about it? And learning to be in touch with fear and anxiety and de- and pain, and pain, mm-hmm. not shunning it and putting a song on to like put the shield on, but instead 
like waves on a beach, letting the waves just crash over you. I think that's a runner's secret weapon is knowing that pain is inevitable. What are you going to do about it? Mm. So again, read Deep Work by Cal Newport. Read all of Ryan Holiday's books, which make you slow down and think about your mind as a vessel for courage and not something that's just kind of monkeying around in there. That's what I think a lot of runners will get a lot of joy from their running and um, just be better performance-wise too. Amazing. Well, I think that's about it that I had. I loved our conversation. I've had a lot of fun. Good job, thank, Dan. Thank you. Good job, Coach. Thank you for the attaboy. <laughs> thank you so much for having you, us Joanne, here. Yeah. Oh no, this is such a delight. And uh, I'll end with one thing. I remember a couple of years ago, I was driving into the office and I saw somebody. They're bobbing their head. It was winter. It was really cold, and I could see just a red hat bobbing up and down along, I think it was State Street. And I remember thinking, that's DW running. And you had just quit your job, Mm -hmm. I think, at that point to pursue it. And I was so proud. I was so proud of you because I was like, wow, like, yeah, that's that's DW running. I mean, Dan, you should be so proud of yourself. I I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) I remember the day I asked Dan if I could have a spot on the team. I'd joined Anthony, who Dan was already coaching, for his Wednesday workout at the track. It was so early in the morning, the sun had only just peeked out from behind Cricket Hill, the grassy mound that observed countless runners complete their loops each morning. It was cold, probably in the low 40s, but just about everyone was running in t-shirts and shorts. I wandered over to the grassy area inside the track. Dan was still holding his stopwatch as he chatted with his runners, several of them still bent over as their frosty exhalations joined the air above them. I introduced myself in my very typically socially awkward way, saying, Hi, I'm Anthony's wife. I was wondering, do you only take fast runners? Without missing a beat, Dan answered, We take runners at all levels. And I know you know what I felt in that moment because you probably felt it as soon as you heard Dan's voice. Safe. Eventually, after years of weekly coaching sessions, weekly long runs, and dozens of races with Dan Walters, I would also add the following words. Challenged. Pushed. And empowered. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Special thanks to Allie, DW Running's co-founder and behind-the-scenes magician, as well as to all the members of the team who allowed bits and pieces of their own stories to make it into this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button and leave a comment and or rating below. Share the episode with anyone you think might be inspired by our chat today. Otherwise, until next week... I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day.